All right, good to see everybody this evening. I hope you had a great week, had some time off and time with family and all of that. Um, Go ahead and turn to John chapter one. That's where we're gonna be this evening. Um, I think I officially get to say this. I think I'm the first. This feels pretty good. So Merry Christmas to everybody. Um, it's, it's officially the season in which we, yeah, Abby's excited about that. I appreciate that. That, that enthusiasm is right on. Um, it's a season where we get to think about the coming of Christ, the coming of God into our world, just such a special time. And um, one of the things that we're going to do in this uh, Christmas season is we're going to do an Advent series called The God Who Comes. We're going to take a break um, from our series that we've been doing in, in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to Look at the, um, the book of John. Um, we're going to take the next few weeks, I think we got like three weeks uh, before Christmas Eve. Isn't that crazy? When you're a kid, the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas is like two years. And then as you get older, you're like, holy cow, it's like just a couple weeks. Um, we're going to take the next three weeks to work our way through the first 18 verses in John chapter 1. Um, and I just think it's going to be a really rich time as I was just spending time in it uh, this past week. Um, it just so many just nuances about the person of Jesus coming out. Just very, very beautiful. Um, so John chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. So let's all stand together. Let's honor the scriptures and let's read this out together. John writing the first biography of Jesus. He says this, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You can be seated One of the uh, interesting things about the Old Testament is how its narrative of who God is and how humans came to be here on earth and what the purpose of humanity is and the value of humanity so differs from every other ancient uh, Eastern myth about God and about humanity. Uh, the Egyptians had a belief that there were multiple gods that came together and they essentially created people. And it, on the surface, you think like, okay, that's like a lot of other ancient you know, myths about creation. What's unique about that? Well, inherently in having a multiplicity of gods, what happens is humans now have to appease a multiplicity of gods. And so over here, you may appease one god, but over here, you may have caused that god's wrath to come on you by doing what you did over here. And so it creates this lifestyle of stress and worry about, well, which god do I do this for and which god do I do that for? The um, Babylonian myth essentially has this god named Marduk who gets in a fight with this other god, kills the other god, basically splays this other god's body all over the universe, and then he says, you know, I don't want to clean up the mess, so I'm going to create human slaves to do it for me. And that's what the Babylonians understood about their origin story and where they came from. And make no mistake... These origin stories inform a lifetime of how someone may see their own worth and their own value, their purpose here on earth. 
And so in many ways, when you read through the Old Testament, when you read through the book of Genesis and on up to the New, you realize that the story of God is in direct conflict with the definitions of what it means to be human that are put forth by other religions written around the same time period as the Scriptures. God defines human purpose and value very differently. Not only do humans, we find out in uh, Genesis chapter 1, carry within them the, this mysterious thing called the image of God and, uh, and an essential part of God reflected in all of humanity, but instead of humans cleaning up their own mess when they make one in Genesis chapter 3, God comes to help them clean it up as Jesus. This is unheard of in the ancient world. And what I want to put forth to you this evening is that when we think about Christmas and we think about God's entrance into our space, into our, uh, our time, into our matter, his entrance into history set a definition of his character for all time towards all people. His coming wasn't just to accomplish something, it was to reveal the character of God. M many have thought um, that, that if there's a God out there, you owe him or her or them. That primarily what it means to be human is to struggle in the mire of life and to pay homage to the gods. In fact, when you read through the Jewish law, it reflects some of those same sentiments. Ultimately, many believe, maybe even you're here this evening and this is what you believe, that God needs something from you. Maybe even you're here because you think God needs this from you. So you're like, I'm gonna endure that guy's message for you, God. Um, maybe you believe that God demands morality. It's, it's behave or you're out. I just saw this really funny video of this like Thanksgiving gone wrong where um, this dad and son basically are getting in an argument and the dad looks at his son and he says, you don't act right, you're out of the family. And the kid goes, I'm not in the family? And he says, no, you don't act right. You're out of the family. And then the kid takes the table and just turns it over, just completely flips it all over. It was, it's amazing. Very sad. Um, but, but maybe you think of God that way. You think of, if you don't act right, you're not part of the family. He needs something from you. Uh, maybe you think he needs your allegiance. You gotta be like, okay, my allegiance is to him and nothing else, and I've set that in my heart, and so I'm good for life. Maybe you think he needs your purity. The more pure, the more unstained that you live, the more he loves you. But I would put forth to you in this series that a God who needs something from you would stay at a distance and demand maintaining their own purity, giving commands from their throne. But a God who comes close who comes so close that he becomes one of us is a God whose very nature is generosity. In this Advent season, what if we simply believed what Jesus said the reason for his coming was? Here's what Jesus had to say. For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so get this, the news of Christmas isn't, hey, God's paying attention. He's actually paying such close attention that he came to become one of you. He's spying on you, and so you better start behaving. No, 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 no. The, the news of Christmas is this, God has come to give. So the question that all of us has put forth before all of us this evening, maybe the most important question in all of your life is this, can you receive him? 
If God is a God whose primary nature is to come close, to be generous, then that means that your primary thing you must do is hold out your hands. Now what we're going to do over the next few weeks is look at each uh, verse in John's introduction to the person of Jesus. So, so what I want to do is I want to look at each stanza um, this evening uh, of just this deep and mysterious truth of God's coming into our world. Maybe, I would in fact imagine that most of you have read this first part of the first chapter of John and just been like, deep and mysterious, beautiful, yes, I'm not sure exactly what it's saying, but it's cool, Right? So let's unpack it a little bit. Look down at your Bibles, verse one. It says this, in the beginning. In the beginning. Now, every biography of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, starts a different way. Some of them are really similar. They start with the genealogy of Jesus, proving that he's from David or that he's an Israelite. He comes from the line of Abraham. But there is nothing like the beginning of John. What John is doing is he's placing Jesus not in the history of Israel, but in the history of the cosmos. And thus, what he's doing when he does that is he's showing what Jesus' purpose is. He's drawing this parallel, and, and, and any Bible, astute Bible student would probably notice this. He's drawing a parallel between Genesis chapter 1 and the coming of Jesus into the world. Where else have we heard in the beginning? Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 begins with, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it is not random at all that John would begin his, begin his biography of Jesus with those two words in, or those three words, in the beginning. John is saying this, Jesus coming into our world is like Genesis chapter 1 all over again. I, I want you to get this, that when Jesus came into our world, what we're celebrating with these nicely lit trees and, and with coming together and singing, you know, oh, come let us adore him. What we're remembering is we're remembering an event that is as significant as Genesis chapter one, the creation of the world. So then what does Jesus coming into our world actually mean? Well, it means creation. Second Corinthians chapter five, 17 says this. This is Paul thinking about this very dynamic Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Those are not random words. The old has gone, the new is here. Christmas time is a time to celebrate the new creation. The possibility that no matter what Genesis 3 has done to you or through you, anyone can have a new beginning. Today can be your Genesis 1. Today can be your new creation. No matter what you've been a part of, no matter what's been done to you, no, no, no matter any of those things, you can have new creation in the beginning. Now, um, remember in the first century, the more ancient someone was or the more ancient an idea was, the more authority it carried. That's like completely the opposite today. Some of you guys have seen like, you know, people are saying like, okay, boomer. You know, they're like totally like turning up their nose at like the boomer generation. Like, okay, boomer, time for you to like exit stage right. We don't need to hear from you anymore, right? But in, in the old world, in the, in the ancient world, the more ancient something is, the more authority it carries. So, so Leslie Newbegin, the, the great uh, missiologist, he says this about this truth that Jesus was there at the beginning. Here's what he says. Jesus is the primal truth with which everything else must be confronted. In the beginning, Jesus, so if he's the most ancient, if it's in the beginning, Jesus, if he's the unmoved mover, if you will, 
Jesus becomes the primal truth that everything else has to be confronted by. And this really means something because look at what comes next in the passage. Verse one again, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Now, we know that this word is, in, is Jesus. This is verse 14 from John chapter one. Eventually, John gets there. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, obviously referring to Jesus who came to be with humanity. But, but think about this. There could have been anything at the beginning. It could have said, in the beginning, there was power. It could have said, in the beginning, there was need. God needed you. God needed something from you. In the beginning, there was laughter. Life is about laughter. But basically, what I'm trying to get at is this. Anything that is at the beginning becomes the guiding principle of all of creation, the purpose of life, the way in which life should be lived. So if it's in the beginning power, then if you're not powerful, you're not living. If it's in the beginning need, then if you're not appeasing God, you're not worth anything. If it's in the beginning laughter, then if you're not having a good time, Life is meaningless. But no, it's in the beginning was the word. So what does it mean that in the beginning there was a word? Well, uh, in the original language in Greek, the word for word is logos. Many of you guys nod your head if you've heard the word logos before. I know many of you, we've talked about it before. But logos is a Greek term, which in this particular context means divine reason. Logos, in the beginning was the logos, in the beginning was divine reason. It's uh, the, the word that the ancient Greeks used to use for wisdom. So you could translate this, in the beginning was the wisdom of God. Or, in the beginning was words that created purpose. See, the logos is the intelligible word of God. It's the wisdom of God. It's the definition of God. It's what he chooses, it's the words he chooses to use in order to define different things. So, so, okay, go, like philosophy 101, go there with me, put your philosophy caps on for for just a second. Um, I think that it's important uh, particularly to see that the logos here is the definition maker. If logos, the word, means divine reason, then not only is there reason to be discovered in our universe, that we actually have a reasonable universe, um, that, that, you know, there's there's essentially, if you were to boil everything that you see around around yourselves down, you would get to math, you would get to numbers. There's certain amounts of particles that come together that create, you know, the pieces of wood that you're now sitting on, and and if if you were to look at, you know, the flowers or or, or the creation around you, it all essentially has a reason behind it. It has a cause that caused it. It has a way in which that it, it stays alive. And so there is actually a sensible reason to the universe that we see around us. Some people give their lives to studying the reason uh, behind the universe. It's it's a really beautiful thing. But if in the beginning was the logos, if in the beginning there was reason, if in the beginning there was a divinely inspired word, if if there was a, a, um, a, a definition in the beginning, whoever the logos is then holds the definitions of what things mean. Say that one more time. Whoever the Logos is, and we find out that this is Jesus, but whoever the Logos is then has the right to hold the definitions of what things mean, of what true purpose is, of what right and wrong really is. It's divine truth. Now, 
It's going to make a little bit more sense in just a moment. This is crazy important. Um, Postmodern modern, uh, philosophers like Heidegger and uh, Foucault, they came to this conclusion uh, in the past 50 years or so that the one, the person, or the group who holds the keys to the definition, definitions of words has the most power. See, oftentimes you look back through human history, you're like, uh, whoever had gunpowder had the most power. You know, whoever had the ability to melt steel had the most power. But, but in our modern world, the person who holds the definitions has the most power. Think about it. If someone defines your lifestyle as dangerous, and you don't change your lifestyle, they just came out and said, hey, actually, I'm defining your lifestyle, what you're doing is dangerous, then you're no longer free to do whatever it is that you've been doing, right? It's quite a lot of power. Now, we live in a culture um, where we have completely lost a shared morality. Have you ever like, been online and you've seen somebody calling something immoral that you're like, what? That's the opposite of what the Bible calls moral. Like, wait, how did we get here where the society is so, we're at such odds? Um, there's, there's really no sense of what is absolutely right. There's really no sense of what is absolutely wrong collectively. Um, so one of the reasons there's such a fight for speech in our country, you know, there's a huge battle over uh, the freedom of speech in our country today. One of the reasons for that battle is that everybody is in a battle for definitions. Everybody wants to control the definitions of words because if they can control the definitions, they can control you. Everyone wants to be the Logos. Think, think about it, this for a moment, another example. Um, let's say that somebody close to you, they define love as endorsement. I don't think we're far off from this. I think that there's probably even some of you in this room. You define, how do you love somebody? You endorse them. You endorse what they do. You endorse the way that they live. You, you basically shut your mouth and you don't say anything about it, or maybe even would be a little bit better, is you say something publicly about it, preferably on some kind of social media platform, so that everybody knows how virtuous you are for endorsing this particular lifestyle, whatever. <laughs> then if you don't endorse, then whoever said that love is endorsement can then say, well, you're a racist bigot, or whatever else. They can throw down the social death sentence with a word, because you violated what? Their definition of love. Oh, definitions matter so much. You, you see the problem, right? With no baseline definition to all of life, with no logos recognized collectively, then essentially you get Twitter. <laughs> you do. Everyone wants to be the logos. Even Twitter wants to be the logos. They're like, hey, that violates our definition of what's hate speech. You have to leave. And you're like, that wasn't hate speech two minutes ago. Oh, but Twitter wants to be the logos. But look down at your Bibles. Verse one, in the beginning was the word. <laughs> that means that Jesus makes the definitions. And ultimately, we will be held to what he deems, not what those around us deem. I think we just need to like, soak this in. Because I know, I look, I'm, I'm out there with you. I'm reading the same stuff you're reading. I'm hearing from the same friends that you're hearing from. And everybody seems to have turned and said, what Jesus deems right and wrong is actually opposite. What you call right is actually wrong. 
And you go, whoa, the definition's just shifted on me, and now I'm scrambling to try to figure out, is there anything sturdy, is there anything stable for me to now lean my life upon? I, I, I know there can be a fear that the mob, that, that, that the collective will define what is right or wrong. So many of us, we live with this inherent fear of like, I gotta be careful what I say. I gotta be careful what I do. I'm just gonna be really open with you guys. I, there was a, a time a number of years ago where I didn't say something, and I, I received so, and because I, have a, I, had, I was on a stage with a thousand plus people, and, and, and because of what I didn't say, I received email after email after email about how wrong I was, and how I wasn't using my platform for the thing that they had defined as what is virtuous and good. And so you know what I did? I haven't been on Instagram since. If you like search for my Instagram, the last picture posted is like 2015 or something. I just was like, find him out. I'm not going to do anything. Now, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. Andoni would disagree with me. I know that. But um, I just was like, okay, fine. I'm not going to play by your definitions. I'm not going to let you see my life then. I, I know that there's a fear there. I also see this fear in many Christians, the fear that we're going to be judged by a future generation. And so we're constantly trying to imagine what the future generation would deem moral or immoral so that we don't have history look upon us the way that, oh, we look upon history. People only fear being judged by a future generation who are judging previous generations. It's called chronological snobbery. It, here's the deal. We won't be judged by a future generation, and we aren't in charge of judging previous generations. He is the logos. His definitions are the definitions that matter, and we will essentially be judged by him. I know of people close to me, their entire life is shaped around trying not to offend. Is it a good or bad thing to offend? You don't have to say anything, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but it's not a good thing to offend people, right? But I've seen people who they live in such a way where they don't want to offend, I don't want to hurt, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. They live in such a way that it shrinks and it shrivels them and they get smaller and they get smaller and they get smaller until they shake at every decision. What should I do? Oh, if I say this, if I do that, if I take a stand, they eventually live for nothing. Maybe we just need to say this again. Jesus is the logos. Jesus holds the definitions. All disciples must come under the standard and definitions of Jesus. This is what we aim for as a family of disciples here. He sets what life really is. Not us, not our culture, not not a celebrity. His morality sets what flourishing really is. Not my best attempt, not me going like, well, you know, the Bible is really old, so maybe, you know, me in 2019 can interpret it a little bit better than, oh, I don't know, 2,000 years of interpretation. No, 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 no. He's been clear about a lot. He's been clear about a lot. And so it's my job then to go, oh, it's his lifestyle that has then set a lifestyle for flourishing. If we're about to read, in him was life. If in him was life, then it means that there's no life outside of him. He defines. Trust me, we're going to get out of verse 1 in just a second. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. You confused yet? <laughs> Have you ever read this and been like, uh, okay, I get it. You were with him, I get it. Um, basically, here's what's being said. 
that this divine word, this logos, that Jesus, he is God, and he was there at the beginning. Um, what's important to see here is that the word was with God and the word was God. So, so think about it. What are words? Um, Dale Bruner, he, he said this. I thought this was just so brilliant. He said, I think that the way a human being's audible words relate to his or her inaudible thoughts, which we very much want to know, is the way that the divine human Jesus relates to the invisible God, whom we very much want to know. This is how Jesus relates to the Father. Jesus, if he is the word who is with God, he's then the exposure of God. He's the way that we have access to understand who God is. Jesus said this in uh, John 14, verse nine. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, I love this line, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, period. Let's just say that together. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So here's the key for us to understand, is that if you're, if you're curious about the character of God, then you must study the life of Jesus. If you're curious about the character of God, you must study the life of Jesus. It's, it, I, look, I'm willing to meet with anybody here, and, and we're gonna eventually do a, a series on biblical literacy and un, how do you understand the Old Testament, and, and there's a lot of weird stuff in there and even some weird stuff in the New Testament. Trust me, the next chapter of Acts that we're gonna read, it's a toughie. Um, so you, you see all that, and, and, and eventually you just go, well, I'm not really sure about God's character. You go, what about, you know, Josh, the book of Joshua? You know, what, what about the Philistines? And, and, and we just, no matter what, it's like, okay, yes, but what about Jesus? God didn't say, when you read the book of Joshua, you are seeing the absolute final representation of the Father, but Jesus did say that. What about Jesus? What we find as we read through the life of Jesus is that we have a Father who's generous, who wants to serve you, who's sacrificial, who's wise, who wants to define your life with his voice. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. I didn't make that up. Jesus said it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want good theology about the Father, you have to look at Jesus. Moving on, verse three. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, John is, is getting at what Jesus is going to do throughout his life here on earth by showing us what Jesus did in Genesis chapter one. It's through this word that everything is created, and John is telling us that because we're about to watch him do the same thing in his life here on earth. What he's saying is that Jesus is the creative factor of God. Jesus is the creative factor of God. When you look at Genesis chapter one, what, what do we see God doing? What do we see the Logos doing? Well, we see God splitting and forming, right? In, in the Hebrew language, there's all kinds of words that, are, that have these connotations to cutting and to splicing and to sewing and to putting back together. So what we see God doing in Genesis chapter one is he's, he's like, land, you're gonna be here, and water, I'm gonna separate you right here. Water, you're going to be here. Sky, you're going to be here. So what is he doing? He's saying, I, I want this much of land. I want this much of water. I want this much of sky. These are mountains. These are trees. They're different than animals. Animals. animals have a spirit in them. They walk around and they make their own decisions. Trees, I want you to be like that. And, and so what we see God doing is he's splitting things up to function correctly, but, but not only that, he's giving them specific functions, right? So he's saying like, hey, son, your job is to be there, and plants, you're made to be consumed, to give sustenance, and he's giving these things functions. Humans, your job is to walk hand in hand with me for the flourishing of all creation, 
So, so he, he gives functions, and by giving functions, what is God doing in Genesis chapter one? He's giving purpose to the matter that he's made. It's not random matter, it's not, you know, it's not just like, oh, it's matter. No, 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 there's function and there's purpose to all matter. And, and what this does, now this is profound, what this does is it gives us a clue to what Jesus will do when he's here and when he's in your life. He's gonna cut and he's gonna splice things so that you have correct proportion in your life. He, he's going to give function to the things that you never knew could be used for him. He's like, oh, you have a, a skill with numbers. I'm gonna use that for me. Oh, you have a skill with people. Yeah, I'm gonna use that for me. Oh, you're creative. Yep, I'm gonna use that for me. And he gives us function, right? Uh, he, he's gonna show you what it truly means to be human. He's gonna teach you, hey, this is what it looks like to really live a good human life. He's gonna use you to remake the broken creation, right? Because that's what he does. In the beginning, he made. In the beginning, Jesus, this divine expression of God, created. And when he comes to us, he's gonna do the same thing. Continuing on. In him was life, verse four, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is life, and that life that he carries in himself is like light. Now, what is light? Maybe some of you, like, I don't know if there's any phys physics majors in the room or people, engineers, you probably have to take physics. Um, what is light? Well, the first thing that light is, is it's food. Write that down if you're taking notes. The first thing that light is, is it's food. Light is food. Um, light is what makes the world work. Sunlight provides the energy that green plants use to create sugars, mostly in the forms of starches, which release energy into the living things that digest them. You get the energy that the plant created in conjunction with light, with the sun, right? The process of photosynthesis provides virtually all of the energy used by living things. Without the sun, there's no food. Light is the single most important life-giving force in our solar system. It literally makes the world function and makes the world work. So what is John saying when he says, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind? This is the light that, I know you got a son, but this is the light that all mankind really needs. What he's saying is this, Jesus' words are life. If you want the light that causes life, then you need this man. You need him. <laughs> he's the one who makes the world function. He's the one who will truly bring you to life. So, so light, firstly, what it does is it's food. Light is food, but secondly, light reveals Light reveals, this is a motif all throughout the scriptures, but light reveals where you're going. It's going ahead of you and traveling at such a speed that you can never outrun light. So it always will be unveiling where you're going. It always is going to be ahead of you and showing you the path in front of you. Now, have you ever been driving on a country road out here where there's like no lights and just for a split second you turned your lights off? Just me? Okay. So, um, <laughs> no, people are like, I don't want to admit to a crime. So, anyway, um, <laughs> I've done it once, okay? And, and I was driving. I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying this is what, I, what happened to me. I was alone. There's not a car in sight. And so I thought, 
I want to I see how dark it really is. Is it really that dark? Do I really need these headlights? So <laughs> I'm driving, and I just go, oh, i got to turn them back on. So I turn them back on, and I was in the other lane. What light does, <laughs> what light does is it shows you where you should be going. And many of us, when we live without light, it's like we're going fast, we're speeding up into the unknown, just waiting to crash. Maybe that's how you feel this evening, you're speeding up without knowing where you're actually speeding to. Your life doesn't actually have direction because it doesn't have real light. But Jesus is the illuminator. You get him and your destiny will unfold. I look back on the uh, past 10 years of my life. So I started following Jesus, uh, really started following Jesus when I was 17 years old. And I look back on those past you know, uh, 10 to 12 years and because my ultimate allegiance from that moment when I was 17 years old and I made that decision to give all of myself over to him, uh, I, I, I think about all of the things that I got to do and participate in that I would have never dreamed of at age 16. I, I, I would imagine my parents were sitting in the back if you were to ask them, what were your dreams for Alex, you know, when he was 16 years old? It looked probably very little like this. They're like, well, the bar's a little bit lower. Um, but you get close to Jesus, and all of a sudden, your destiny begins to unfold at the pace that you give your yes. You get close to Jesus, and the, the more you give a yes to him, the more of an adventure you go on. Have you ever, I really think there's some of you this evening who you've been on that adventure before, but you stopped saying yes. It just got too scary. And I think Jesus wants to invite you back to that adventure. I know there's some of you who are here this evening. You, you uh, gave uh, some big yeses to Jesus when you had nothing to lose, and now you feel like you have something to lose by giving him your yes. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the light. Let me show you what I can do with your yes. Let me show you what I can do with your life. What he, what he does is he illuminates your destiny the closer you get to him. And so I know, and man, there's, I know there's some of you, I've talked with Jack about this before, uh, there's a sensitivity that grows when you know that the edge of the light, you're walking on the edge of the light and maybe you're going towards the darkness rather than staying in that that sweet, intimate place every day, every moment. What are you doing? What are you saying? Where are you going? How are you moving? And I want to give a yes, a hearty yes to that light, a hearty yes to that destiny, no matter the cost. I find myself, guys, almost every single week, just to be honest with you guys, I, I come here and I get fed more than I pour out. I leave this place always full. And, um, and, I, and, I, and so often I come here and I just, all of the things, all of the darkness... And I, I'm not, it's not always sin, guys, it's, but it's just all of the inattentiveness, all of the times that I wandered off the illumination, I, oh, through that last week, I find myself just going, oh, what was I doing? Yes again. Yes again. I found myself just laying in bed. I, was, I had a lot of time to myself last night awake, and I found myself laying in bed just saying, whatever, wherever, however, with whoever, whatever, wherever, however, with whoever. Lord, I just want to sign up again. And I know my call is here. I know my call is to, to lead this church, and I know that's what the Lord has for me in my life, but I never want to lose that sensitivity that keeps me in the light. 
I never want to lose that sensitivity that illuminates my destiny because I don't want to find my, I don't want to get to the end of my life and go, I can pinpoint the times where I gave you a no and I didn't have the adventure. I want to be able to look back on my life and say, I never would have pictured that, I never would have imagined that, but I gave you my yes and look what you did. That's what he has for every single person in this room this evening. It's also reality that, um, that wherever light exists, darkness cannot. Look down at your Bibles, verse five. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is a resurrection statement. Jesus wasn't snuffed out. Jesus is alive. N- notice it's in present tense. The light shines in the darkness. It's still shining in the darkness. Jesus is unstoppable. Jesus is unbeatable. Jesus will not be changed. Jesus will not be removed. Jesus will not allow culture to overcome him and his life and his message. Even, in, even the darkness of a lonely grave couldn't snuff out the impact of this one man. And here we are approaching Christmas 2019 and we're still talking about him. The light shines in the darkness. What, is all, what does all this mean? tonight for us. I don't think there's anything else that we need to contemplate this evening than the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. I think Paul really understood what John was saying when he wrote this about Jesus in Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our reconciler. Jesus is the designer of our lives. Jesus gives us great and unmeasurable value. And he offers this to everyone. Come, get me. Open the door. I'm knocking. And I will come in. I will eat with you. And for all of your life, I will be in you. And you will be in me. Just like we sang earlier. We want Jesus here. There are a lot of important things that Jesus Jesus does. But the key is this. Do you simply want him? Whether, it, whether you're after peace or signs and wonders, seeing the miraculous happen, we're gonna hear some testimonies this evening about just miraculous things that have happened right here. Um, whether it's justice, you just wanna see the power structures of our world turned on their head. M- maybe it's joy, you're all about joy. You, you love Jesus because of the joy that he brings. Or, or maybe you just are all about discipleship and character change and life transformation. Look, All of those things can become the focus for a people, but only one person holds them all and unlocks them all, and that's him. It's Jesus. We want him at this church. Probably the most famous quote of C.S. Lewis ever, but I just found so appropriate for uh, this, this evening. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give yourself up, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. 
Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing in you that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Here's my hope for us this season. I simply want to put Jesus high. I simply want to just place the highest honor on the person of Jesus in this season to say to him, you are the son. You are the centerpiece of all of life, of all of the cosmos. You make life really happen. And the beauty of a church who understands this is that when they exalt him, what Jesus said would happen will actually happen. He said, if, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all people unto himself. So our intellect, our community, our family, our gifts, our talents are only as strong as our exaltation of Christ. Our intellect, our community, our family, our gifts, our talents that we have are only as strong as our exaltation of Christ. We will see Newburgh change to the degree that we exalt him personally and corporately. So that's what we're gonna do this season in Advent, is we're gonna exalt Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a reason to hope tonight. Let's stand up together as we close.